when someone is putting you in a position of harm, you can't do anything other than focus on that. There's no room to think about, oh, well, the dishes that need washing, the laundry that needs folding, the 10 million things on my to-do list. Like, there's no time for that. If you think about that, you're getting choked. Hello and welcome to Inside Out, the podcast where we redefine success with entrepreneurs and other badass millennials. I'm your host, Jane Z. I've been so stoked about this episode ever since I met Erica. She is a force to be reckoned with, whether in business, on the jujitsu mat, or through the written word. I met Erica Zendel through a mutual friend just a few months ago, just as she was starting her adventure of, in her words, untethering herself from the world of tech. She's been working as a product manager at several tech companies, including Wayfair, SAP, and ASICS, the shoe company, after her MBA. But last year, with her father passing and her turning 30, it forced her to reflect on how she wanted to spend the next decade. So a few months ago, she took the leap, quit her job, and got in a car with her boyfriend and her dog, and they're now on a road trip across the country where she's training and competing in jiu-jitsu and writing a book. And you can follow along her writing journey on Instagram and her newsletter titled Zen in the Art of Fighting. After this episode, you might, like me, want to actually try a jiu-jitsu class, If you enjoy this episode, be sure to check out Erica's work. All the links are in the show notes. And if you're new here, be sure to hit that follow button on Apple or Spotify for new episodes every Tuesday. You can find me, Jane Z, on Instagram at Inside Out with Jane. All right, on to the show. Hey, Erica, how are you? Well, good morning, Jane. Good morning. So I've been doing a lot of binging of your blog lately, and I realized we actually have a ton in common. We both did acapella in undergrad. We started a business out of Boston, and both our last names start with Z. So in elementary school, we were probably both at the end of the line. There's something to be said of how much it shapes you to be at the end of the alphabet and to be perpetually last. Maybe it's something around a constant desire to be first for a change. Mm, mm -hmm. Maybe that's where the competitiveness initially (laughs) came from. Who knows? Right, right. I went to a Jewish day school. So alphabetically in like the Hebrew alphabet, I think I came closer to the beginning compared to other people. So that offered a mix up. Did you go to Jewish day school all through elementary school? Yep. Uh, Seven years up until uh, middle school, at which point my parents were concerned that an overly religious education might preclude me getting into college, (laughs) (laughs) which to be fair, you have a kid who first wants to be a dermatologist, then an astronaut, and then a rabbi. Whoa! Um, I mean, I think everyone wanted to be an astronaut at some point. Yeah. Dermatologist though, as a kid. Yeah. Very niche. I think I had an interest in like reconstructive surgery and I had bad skin. And my favorite show at the time was Nip Tuck, which is not a child-friendly <laughs> show. But I was like, ah, well, reconstructive surgery, it doesn't have to be the tell me what you don't like about yourself to fairly superficial doctors with a lot of personal drama. Like, there is <laughs> something to be good around helping people like burn victims with skin grafts and things mm. like that. I bounced around as my, <laughs> my actual professional experience would suggest <laughs> too, but not to dermatology or reconstructive surgery. Too not much, yet. Too much education. <laughs> yeah. The last time we spoke, you had just embarked on this adventure of untethering yourself from tech and jumping into full-time 
jujitsu and writing. How's that adventure going so far? Well, I'm definitely cleaner than the last time you spoke to me <laughs> when I was sitting in the car of the CVS parking lot and my phone went dead. So technologically superior, uh, cleanliness wise, I've actually showered. So that's also Upgrade. superior. <laughs> I mean, it's going well. At the time I was in Austin, now I'm in Oklahoma City. So going from a city that a lot of people are like, oh, that's so cool. You're like quitting your job and like living in Texas. I think a lot of people didn't realize uh, I was going to go a little bit more off the beaten path. I think the biggest shift has been waking up, setting your own schedule, holding yourself accountable when you no longer have the expectations of a recurring meeting. Even if I was the one setting up these meetings for like teams and other people, holding myself to my own schedule requires a different degree of like discipline and wanting it, even though I'm not getting, you know, paid by quote, like the man or a company mm -hmm. anymore. I'm paying in my own time for every minute that I waste or every day I don't uh, make the most of. So it's a different kind of cost that I am paying to, in the eyes of most people, do whatever it is that I feel like doing whenever I feel like doing it. Just on a practical level, did you plan on, you know, saving up for this time? And then do you have a sort of plan for how you're going to support yourself moving forward? I'm trying to remember what I wrote in a Slack, like one of my last Slack messages at the office. And it was something like, I have three options. I get an advance in a book deal. I run out the savings or I go back to, you know, work in a more corporate gig, whichever comes first. My preference is number one. And like my intention is number one. In terms of how much I saved, I had a couple of friends who had quit to start their own thing. One of whom I'd spoken to, I think in January when I was first having my like, okay, like maybe this is the time. It, it took me like six to eight months before I finally found the cujones to do it, so to speak. And I kind of benchmarked my own number of what I wanted or needed in savings based off the number that she quit with. I also, when I was in Houston, which was our first like major stop on the trip, like spent one night like writing out like the whole budgeting exercise of if a competition costs this much, if I'm mm. offering up this much in rent, my boyfriend is traveling with me too, and he's continuing to work. So okay. some of that too is what is a fair contribution if I'm not generating income. And the way that that's looked is I'll pay the rent in some of the less expensive cities because we alternate mm. and we'll cover some of the more expensive ones as a way to split you can always make more money. You can't get more time. And that was what mm. ultimately convinced me. I was going into my like 31st birthday in July. I ended mm. up quitting eight days before that. Like the gift I'm giving myself this year is the gift of my time back. Ooh. And that's the most precious I thing that. I could give myself this year. Did COVID come into play with that? I mean, my, uh, my dad passed away early mm. on in COVID, not from COVID. He'd been sick since December of 2017. And he, he'd been like on the men down lung heart problems. And I saw him for the first time, like in a really, really impaired state in between ending my job at SAP and starting at ASICS, I went home and that shook me up. He was in and out of hospice. My, my mom told me, Hey, you should you know, plan to come home. I didn't expect that it was going to be as fast as it did. It was on March 31st. I like booked a ticket home, not even knowing if I would be allowed across the state border. Cause in early COVID, like we didn't know what was going right. to happen. My, my mom lives in New Jersey. And I was like, are they going to stop me at the state line when trying to go right. through Connecticut? Are they going to let me rent a car? Yeah. Can I get on a train? Can I fly? I, it was it was a really confusing time. But yeah, he had passed away on April 1st. And I remember that first day going home on April 3rd. Oh. Like it was, I heard the news at like 11 o'clock at night. I don't remember sleeping well. I think I was up at five in the morning, like 
doing freaking communication strategy, as I would put it, for like the passing of my father for, mm. okay, who, here are the people who need to know from me directly. Here are the people who can hear it through the grapevine. How do I tell my manager? How do I tell certain people in my life? And it, that's how I know that like tech had kind of ruined me a little bit when I was thinking about a deeply personal and convoluted loss. I had a, I had a very loving but conflicted relationship with my dad. I was thinking about his death in terms of communication strategy and how many, and I didn't think I could take more than a couple of days off. I think I was back the next Tuesday because I was so concerned about this rebrand project that was going to go off the rails or so I thought if I wasn't still driving the ship. And I remembered one of the regrets I had was I didn't take more time to grieve the loss, but in early COVID it's like, okay, well, how do you get through something like this? Well, there's more work, I guess. Like work can be a good distraction. It's and the strange thing too, is the team that I ultimately moved to that leader's father also passed away like mm-hmm. three weeks later. And, and then there were like two other people from my past who's like dads passed away, like over the course of the year. And I, wow. it was weird how I suddenly found myself in this position, not of giving advice, but forced immediately to reflect on the things that I wish I'd done when he passed away, which was whether you drink your sorrows or starve them out, go to work or not work, mm. um, grief and how you handle it is inherently personal. The hardest mm-hmm. part was jujitsu, which had gotten me through breakups, which had gotten me through other low points, which mm. had been, you know, that gym and those people in that community that I had, the gym was closed. So I was shit out of luck. I did not have that outlet. I ran a lot. It made me better at understanding Runkeeper and the product during that time of COVID. <laughs> But I'm like, yeah, this is, it's a holdover. I'm going to do this half marathon training plan, but I mm-hmm. hope that by the time this half marathon training plan is done, that my sport of choice is available to me again. And it was in a limited way um, right. with my own personal risk tolerance. But yeah, I mean, COVID was a big part of it, of the don't wait to live your life. But I think the bigger part was the fact that COVID hit. And then like two weeks later, my dad had passed away. And then I turned 30 in July of 2020. I went with my mom on a long weekend to the Cape, that milestone where I'm 30. I'm no longer going to be able to be 30 under 30 in mm-hmm. some write-up in a magazine. I thought that by the time I was 30, I'd be you know, a director of product or reach a certain level of status in my career. Like Those three things between like COVID, my dad passing away, and that birthday shifted the, well, what do I actually want? What about the next decade? Mm-hmm. What do you want to have to show for it? trying to live up to your father's dreams of marrying the nice Jewish boy and becoming an investment banker, <laughs> no longer on the table. Right. And with good reason. And the strange thing too is a lot of people I knew like were like really, really fearful for their health, really risk averse. I kind of went the opposite way, whether I told people about it or not at the time, <laughs> I, I didn't feel comfortable disclosing, but people knew that I was serious about jujitsu. I was willing to travel to compete. So when the first tournaments mm. came back on the calendar, like I was in. Ironically, I think I traveled more on planes, staying in hotels. Like I, I traveled more in the tail end of last year than I think I ever had. Started with the impromptu trip to Mexico City that I did on two weeks notice. And mm-hmm. that kind of opened the door to what else was possible. First, I do want to say I'm I'm really sorry about your dad. Um, Thank you. 2020 really threw a ton of curveballs at, at a lot of us. But I think for you, it sounds like it was really this shifting point. Did you turn to writing at all to process your grief? Yeah. So after that first time I'd seen him in a really infirm condition in 2019, I wrote an essay called Steel and Stone that was probably among my better pieces of writing. And it was about him and that visit home and a bracelet that 
I took back with me to Boston from my my dad's like jewelry case. Mm. Interestingly, like I wrote something on LinkedIn that I'm quite proud of Mm. um, about the things that I learned from my dad. The two pieces of advice that I live with the most are like, always watch your back and enjoy your life. And I think that those are the two things that I have carried with me for Mm. this entire trip of jujitsu has taught me how to watch my back and defend, protect myself to the best that I can as a female of a certain size and weight and enjoy my life. This trip is about that, Mm. Um, or at least taking responsibility for how I live my life. It doesn't always have to be joy. If it were all joy, it would also be very boring. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. What is it about jujitsu that was like the one thing that would have helped you process all these things? Like the thing that you've been going to these past few years? So the way that I think about jujitsu is like why I started and why I keep going are two different questions. I think why I started would have been the relief I would have looked for at the time. You can't think about anything else other than the problem at hand, whether it's how somebody is trying to grab you, the damage they're trying to inflict. When someone is putting you in a position of harm, you can't do anything other than focus on that. There's no room to think about, oh, well, what about this release note that I need to write? What about the dishes that need washing, the laundry that needs folding, the 10 million things on my to-do list? Like, there's no time for that. If you think about that, you're getting choked. And especially as you get to like a higher level, it is the difference of one grip, one second, one moment where someone else is getting into their game before you And that'll influence the course of the match. If you watch, I'd say at like the highest level, that is what it comes down to. Someone who is able to get a certain grip in a certain place and to be offensively one step ahead. Then the the other person is just playing catch up the entire time. But yeah, I think when everything was going up in flames, the relief that I was looking for last year was like the, I want to be in a state of no mind. And when I started doing jujitsu, the addictive piece of it for me was, you know, it was my first job in tech. It was brutal. And when I was, you know, getting the crap beaten out of me, I couldn't think about like the drama of my engineering team. I couldn't think about Mm. stakeholders who were angry about the way that a certain AB test looked. (laughs) There wasn't time for that. And also actually my, um, my manager at that company had done jujitsu for a significant period of time and he was fully supportive. It's like, yeah, this is good for you. You Oh, good. Um, (laughs) So in the past three years, I've gotten into combat sports mainly boxing. Mm -hmm. My uh, now fiance got me into watching UFC and that's really helped me appreciate fight sports because beforehand, I don't know, I I probably just thought they were violent and unnecessary, but now I kind of get it. It's like there's no other sport or activity where it's just you and your physical ability, you know, like all the other sports you're using some kind of tool or a ball or whatever here. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's just you and your opponent go. I I almost think of it like opera, where even if you just have somebody who tells you what all the songs mean or like what the story is, you come into a show, even where you don't understand a single word, you come in with a greater appreciation of it. And kind of same thing where you walk into a museum, you can walk around, it's like, oh, there are a bunch of pictures. Cool. Some are colorful, some are not. Some are more abstract, some are more, you know, true to life. But if you have somebody tell you a little bit about the artist, a little bit about the story, the time period in which it was created... Doing even just a little bit of that homework or having even just a couple of classes with a good instructor to teach you the fundamentals, it gives you such an appreciation for that art. So I I tell people that fighting in that way is like opera, Mm. where don't knock it until you've had the opportunity to take one class, study a little, even if it's not about the art itself, study a little bit about the fighter. I'd venture to say there isn't a boring person who exists in the UFC. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Do you feel like you've always had that fighter instinct in you? Physically, no. 
I think mentally, emotionally, yes. My dad was an attorney. So every argument you're arguing with a lawyer, the lawyer's always going to be right. He used to have a pillow that was like, a good lawyer knows the law, a great lawyer knows the judge. So no matter what I was arguing about, even if I was right, I was never going to be right uh, <laughs> against him. So I think the the sense around like fighting intellectually, verbally, that I definitely grew up with. I did do karate as a kid for a couple of years. I enjoyed it until there was one day where I got like dropped on my head from sparring. And I remember my parents, it was in like a strip mall in North Hale in New Jersey. <laughs> my parents were having dinner at like the Italian restaurant next door. And I was really upset and rattled. And I think that was when my focus around activity redirected to purely tennis and purely studying for SATs and like college admissions. I think it was around, I want to say it was in sixth or seventh grade at the time. It was yeah. another friend that introduced you to jujitsu, right? There was a combination of three people. There was one who directly introduced me to, to jujitsu. I, I went to MIT for grad school, but I, I wanted to do at least one course at HBS. I used to work at HBS as a case writer. And I'm like, okay, I want to be on the other side of the classroom. I want to take advantage to take a full-on case class. So the person who ultimately brought me into jujitsu was someone I met in that class. He was the one who was like bullying me of like, you should come in, you should come in. I don't think his push would have worked though if one, I didn't actually end up liking it. And two, there were like two other people. So the story goes, I was working in tech. It was like my first fall. Everything on paper is great. I've got, you know, two prestigious degrees. I've got, you know, a respectable job with upward potential live in a nice apartment in Chinatown in Boston. But yeah, the degrees aren't serving me particularly well in this job. Turns out I have to learn everything on my own. Nothing I learned in management school actually helped me to learn how to manage. Company culture was definitely in a shifting point. Anytime you work on like storefront for a retail organization, you know, the margins are slim, the pressure is hot. Days like Black Friday are, you know, do or die mm. kinds of holidays and e-commerce. This was at Wayfair? This was at Wayfair. And Wayfair had gone from having like 10 product managers to like 50. So it ended up wow. being like scaling, growing pains and a bit of a turf war. Like if you threw me back in there, I would know exactly how to handle that jungle. But as like my first job in tech, I'm like, oh my God, mm. like this is not, what is this? I don't know how to deal with it. It was really tough as an adjustment. And then the guy that I was seeing, who I thought was the love of my life. Yeah. Weekend before Cyber Monday, just like, we're done. I'm like, what? So that was a long, I mean, there's the tech untethering, which is ongoing. That relationship untethering was brutal. And one of the people who had known me from when I did the food startup, the best thing that I met in that basement kitchen, her name was Jay. Jay was like, yeah, you need a hobby. Dating doesn't count. <laughs> um, she'd seen me go through multiple grieving processes around this relationship. And I had another friend who I worked with when I was at HBS. She's brilliant. She's awesome. And I remember she'd been engaged to like her like high school sweetheart. She had always been kind of sedentary. I think she would have described herself that way. And then the next time I saw her, I had her over for dinner in March, 2017. She was running marathons and powerlifting. And she, like the wow. fiance was out of the picture. Damn. And she'd like taken her power back in such a big, inspiring way. And her point was like, yeah, you got to get something to get your swagger back. And during that dinner at my apartment, my ex had sent me a really nasty text where he was like, I'm not going to pay the money that I owe you. <gasps> and then Oof. the other guy who brought me to jujitsu is like, hey, you want to come to a class tomorrow? I'm like, I'll go on Wednesday. Like, fine, it's done. So oh. like, the comp, like March 17th, 2017 was like the pot boiled over. I'm like, fine. I'm like, I'll go. I don't know what's going to happen. And it was two days before that I had launched like my biggest project at Wayfair. That was what I threw myself into after the breakup. And when that mm -hmm. was over, I'm like, well, now what? I had knocked it out of the park on that work project. 
that everyone said was impossible. Like building a e-commerce store with like 10 weeks of dev time is insane. So like the big work dragon had been slayed Mm. and now there was room to address everything else. And then yeah, one week later I walked into Broadway. And I remember when I started, there were three free classes before I had to sign up. The first two classes, my friend was there. The third class, I was like, okay, my friend's not gonna be there. If I like this, even when he's not around, then I have my answer. And by the third class, I'm like, yep, I'm in. And I went to San Francisco on vacation the following week. I dropped into classes when I was in California. Wow. I, I didn't have more than like a week of jujitsu. I'm like, yeah, sure. Like, why not? And I knew that I was in. Is it traditional jujitsu or Brazilian jujitsu? I do Brazilian jujitsu. What's the difference? I think most of the Japanese martial arts, jujitsu, judo, and many others on the feet. Brazilian jujitsu is largely focused on ground fighting. Got so it. Every okay. match for Brazilian jiu-jitsu will start on the feet, mm-hmm. but it's usually on the mat where the match gets won or lost, unless someone chokes you from the feet, which can also happen. The breadth of techniques, I think, is larger in a BJJ versus some of the traditional Japanese martial arts where you could open up a book in the Kodokan and you will have all the names of all the techniques uh, in judo. Not to say there's no room for creativity, but like there's a very clear set of kata. BJJ is like evolving and growing. There's not the same nomenclature even. Like I go to one gym, they call it something, the muscle sweep, they call it the lumberjack sweep at another gym. So what does a BJJ class typically look like? Like you walk in, you're wearing your gi, what happens? Well, even one step back, you walk into a BJJ class, it it could be a gi or a no gi class. Okay. So you might just be dressed up like you're about to go surfing in like a rash guard and spats and board shorts. (laughs) Um, there's definitely something to be said around the intersections between like jujitsu and surfing culture too. I think also just the origins in Brazil and Rio, people go surfing and then go train in Southern California where jujitsu migrated to and where worlds and the major competitions ended up being for a long time. And I say for a long time, because a lot of the major competitions in COVID got moved to places like Florida and Texas, whereas historically they had been almost exclusively in California and New York, but yeah, traditional class, whether it's gi or no gi, gi with the kimono on Nogi in your surfer ensemble of rash guards. Having visited a bunch of gyms now, it's the way that a class is structured or how long each segment will take will differ. The beginning of the class will usually include some sort of warm up of like fundamental movements in jujitsu that tends to be like a hip escape, a combat base, something that like warms up your core and your legs, your arms. In a more advanced class, you might just warm up with like 10 minutes of drilling something that you're working on. Then the instructor will show a technique or a series of techniques. Then depending on the level of the class or the timing, there's usually some sort of live sparring at the end with a partner. It might be from a situation. Let's say we're learning cross collar choke from closed guard. That was my very first class. It's like, okay, start in that position, try to finish the choke. The person on top is trying to get out. That would be like a situation. Sometimes it'll depend on like how big the gym is. If the gym's big, you might start like standing from the feet, which is what would happen in an actual match. Or if there are space constraints, you might start like, okay, one person's like standing at like up and down in a guard or something like that. It's usually warm up technique, some sort of rolling. And if something's more of like a fundamentals class with like practitioners who are earlier on, there might not be sparring. And then for some of the more advanced classes or something that's more competition focused, it might be like, it's on you to warm up however you see fit. Mm. We're going to jump right into drilling. Do they pair you up by size? That's an, (laughs) sometimes. So at my old gym, one thing I really appreciated that my instructor did, and it took a lot of the guesswork out is for sparring. 
he would usually make the groups. The man could read a room incredibly knowing exactly what each person like needed to work on, or at least he did the best that, that he could, which sometimes would be like grouping people by similar rank, sometimes grouping by similar size or weight. Sometimes like knowing like, hey, this person is going up against an opponent whose style is reminiscent of this person's in the gym, so they should go against this person. In a lot of gyms, though, you're not going to find that level of curation necessarily in your rounds. Every place I've been so far on the trip, you kind of you make eye contact with someone. It's like, cool, we're going to roll. Great. Like it's a lot. It's been a lot more self-directed. Hmm. I think the only exception was during COVID, the way that the gym was able to stay open was you had a prescribed group of like 10 people max. And those were your sole training partners for the duration of lockdown. Okay. So if someone got COVID, you knew that you could just quarantine that whole group. Mm. And that, that group needs to show a got test it. to prove that, hey, I'm COVID free. I can come back in and train. But you always needed one other partner from your group. You couldn't just like commingle and mess around. Mm. And that's how okay. they kept the door open. If there's one piece of advice that I was uh, I was given a few times on this trip, and now I'm starting to take more seriously, it's uh, just you got to be really careful in who you pick to train with. And that can be hard when you're a beginner to know who's going to be a safe partner and who's not, especially as, as a girl in the room. And like blue belt, like I'm still chum. I'm not a black belt, right? But like I've got a couple years under my belt. If I go in, there's like a dude white belt who's about my size or bigger. He thinks he's going to smash the shit out of me. It's like newsflash, unless you're a wrestler or you're like a freaking body, like you're probably not. Like I know what to do. Ego's delicate. The interpersonal dynamics are delicate. Like I was in a situation last night where the guy was struggling and yeah, he like ripped an arm bar on me. I tapped audibly because I mean, I'm competing next week. This arm could be in better shape. It gets armbarred a lot. If I were a day one, like white belt female, giving the guy a hard time and he ripped it like that, like I wouldn't feel safe in that training room. There's so much trust that you need to have in jujitsu, not only in like your technique, but like in your training partners. Like there are certain injuries that I have because of a training partner's ego that like, there's nothing I can do. Knowing the room is really important. I'd say that's one of the harder things on the trip of like, okay, this person, if I start on top, like I'm safe. But if I'm on bottom, they're going to rip an Americana on me mm. like mercilessly or like, I'm going to have to tap early because this person is slow to respond in a dominant situation. You have to know enough of the language to know who's safe. And going from gym to gym, it's like relearning the room every single time. There were a bunch of women who joined my gym right before I left Boston. And I keep going back to just like how lucky they were to have, like there were eight of them and they all had each other and they were like becoming friends and learning and training at the same time. So there was no concern that they wouldn't have at least one safe training partner. I remember when I started, there were there were a couple of women. A lot of them didn't stick around, whether it was because they moved or lifestyle changes. But if I were in their shoes, I would have been happy to have someone like me to be like, okay, when like the pods are over, like this person's safe to roll with. This person's gonna try to like go after your ankles. This person is really really flexible. So if you're trying to rip an arm bar and you don't know why it's not working, it's because they're like double jointed and like made of rubber. Um, <laughs> To have someone who will demystify the room for you hmm. is really valuable when you're starting to train. The most valuable skill I might have cultivated on this trip so far, jujitsu-wise, is how to pick training partners and like read a room more quickly than I used to. It sounds like it's a lot of observing how they fight with other people. Is that is that it? It's part of it. You can watch their style. You can watch the positions that they're trying to force or to go for, where they feel most comfortable. You can see based on where somebody decides to slow down the match or the types of control that they're looking for. It's not a guarantee though, of how mm -hmm. they're going to go with you. So like for competition, like I can watch tape of my bracket 
and see what people tend to go for in like the opening minute. So now like, okay, this person likes to pull this kind of guard. This person likes to take down. This person will wait it out and wait for the other person and like counterfeit. It's not a guarantee of what they're going to do with you. For a tournament in Austin, I had a friend who competed against uh, the person I was competing against. It's like, oh, she's really tough. She's really good. Everyone can wipe the floor with her. Like it's the kind of thing where like you don't know what your matchup's going to look like and people will say styles make matches and it's true. There can be a high level match that looks really, really, really boring where, you know, someone pulls like a closed guard and just kind of like stays there for the match, maybe makes one thing happen. And then with another person, it's like people flying all over the place and doing flying triangles and leg drags and like you don't really know what's going to happen when you bring two, I guess, chemicals together to react in a match. Like me being reactive with one person might be inert with somebody else. Mm. It just depends. Do you typically know who you're matched against when you go into a tournament? It depends on the tournament and the format. For the round robins, you go with almost everybody who is listed on the roster. For elimination, it, you'll usually know who your first round match is. But then after that, it depends on who won in other parts of the bracket. You stick around long enough, especially if you're female, and you eventually start seeing the same people at white and blue belt. I'm told that after purple belt, there's like a huge cliff in terms of who you start seeing. Do you have an end game in mind? Like, are you training to make black belt or do you have like a specific goal in mind for jujitsu? I mean, I fully intend to get my black belt. It's not going to be on my schedule. <laughs> but um, I will persist. So I'm as part of like content for the book or blog or other things, interviewing people about like their trajectories in jujitsu, what got them started, what kept them going, advice they have about competitions, and just like the journey to mastery into like lifelong commitment. Everyone I respect who's a black belt, they see it as a the beginning. They don't see it as the end. It, it can be a milestone, but it can't be the goal because otherwise, just like I was when I started, I launched that website right before I started jujitsu. I thought like, that was the accomplishment. But then there was always a what's next in the same way with work. Like I started Wayfair as a product manager, went to SAP. I got the promotion and I would have wanted to like senior at ASICS. I got the project scope that I wanted. Once that milestone is reached, it becomes almost instantly unfulfilling mm. after like the one day of celebrating it. Part of the journey of this like road trip and the writing and jujitsu is like, what will it mean for me to make a lifelong commitment out of something and to pursue mastery in a way that is meaningful to me? Because I've also learned that what has fulfilled all these various practitioners in jujitsu. It's different for each of them. When I started this trip, I thought the goal was like, yeah, I want to be a blue belt world champion at adult. The longer I'm on this trip, I'm like, is that really the goal? Because I figure with enough hard work, the luck of the, the actual draw of a bracket and having a really good day, like I'm confident my jujitsu is good enough, but that also can't be the goal. Cause I could tell you, like I won master's world just like for over 30 last uh, December most prestigious tournament when I'd had, it kind of wore off after a couple of weeks. It mm. wasn't as uh, self-actualizing as I thought it would be. Metal chasing, it, like the medals are fleeting and I'm not someone who is comfortable resting on her laurels. So there needs to be something more than that. So the goal I think in jujitsu for me, it's just continue to chase my personal best, raising the bar and kind of lead by example. I could see myself being very happy teaching classes, being like a role model, coach, mentor, and kind of do what my coach did for me. He's someone I really respect who embodies a lot of the values that I wanted to have when I came in to start training. Right. Made me stronger, more resilient, more patient, and never quitting. Let's assume at the end of this trip, I've you know checked all my boxes before hitting 35 and I've written my book. I've decided to pick a place to settle. Assuming there's a child in the picture, I'm going to be able to prove that any room you walk into, you can pave the path for yourself. 
even mm-hmm. if you don't look like everyone else there, even if the odds seem stacked against you, by continuing to show up and persist, there is a way. And it's just a matter of one person having the courage to walk so that that road starts you know, getting some footprints and eventually it's paved. And then, then there's a new road to go down. I do still want to ask you about your writing journey. How has that been over almost the last decade? You know, how has that evolved and sort of complemented your life on the mat? What's the book that you're working on? Sure. So I go back to college and it's 2009. My hobby at the time was like making stationery. There was a paper source on Nassau Street in Princeton. And I did some of the like card making classes and I had a very strong practice of writing people letters, like old school letters. The blog kind of emerged out of, well, two things. First, I was like, I'm going to write a blog about being a comparative literature major and music, literature, pieces of poetry, and like how they were relating to my life. That was like the inception of the blog in 2011. And then when I moved to Boston after graduation, the blog started being like the open letter to people in my life. Because I wrote a lot of letters. I didn't get as many back. I got a few, but... It's a lot of energy to put your heart and soul into a letter and to not feel the return. So yeah, the blog was the open letter to anyone who wanted to know what was going on in my life. The writing got better over time. I stayed committed to it. I was writing a lot more frequently at the beginning of my time in Boston, but then business school started. I started writing monthly for the MBA blog and then doing one personal post, held myself to that for a long time, but it it never got to where I wanted it to be. It wasn't getting the dedicated attention, mindshare, especially once I graduated from business school. Like tech took all of my like creativity, problem solving, inspiration, and forced me to apply it into like how to manage team dynamics, how to get to know people, how to learn the field of product management. Um, There wasn't much left in the tank. Also, the things I really wanted to write about were probably the kinds of things that would have gotten me fired. Like I wish I had more writing like personal in a diary of like the things that were going on at Wayfair, how I felt at the time when I was going through them, what was actually happening. I probably could have written a tech tell-all a la Anna Wiener's Uncanny Valley like five years before that that came out based on my experience at Wayfair. But obviously, unless I had a pen name, and even then, like I didn't have the courage to. Like one, work kind of sucked everything out of me because I was committed to the professional goals I had and to there wasn't energy left in, I would have gotten fired probably for what I wanted to write. And now like from a process perspective, I'm still trying to figure that out. It it is not as easy as creating a Trello board or a Jira board and saying like, here are my to do's, here's what's in progress. Here's what done is though. I am trying to map it to like a sprint process or what are the goals and KPIs for like each half of the year writing wise. So I can look back on 2021 and be like, yep, here were my like really lofty goals. I got one of them. Here were the things that I know that I needed to do. And here were like the table stakes. There's more business and project management in this creative process than, than I would have expected. I, I, I definitely came in with the like, oh, this is going to be wonderful. I'm just going to sit at my laptop or in a coffee shop, like drinking my bespoke latte and <laughs> feeling in the zone. Like, nah, if I want a book that is read by more than just my mother... There's a lot of work that goes into that. And I'm really mm-hmm. grateful actually that I do have the experience tech because my last two roles at ASICs were around marketing and CRM. So were it not for those roles where I was observing around like email, databases, CRM strategy, various marketing tactics and tools for engagement, the things that I needed to learn in order to promote my writing, uncomfortable as they are, like I'm putting them into action like immediately. But I find it hilarious that 
for a lifestyle of product and project management, when it comes to doing that for myself, I almost need to hire somebody to like crack the whip on me Mm. because it's like giving dating advice versus taking it. (laughs) It's really easy to give. You can see the problem very clearly when it's not you, but when it's you, you're just like, (laughs) yeah, totally. It's two very different modes of working. You know, when you're in the zone, unearthing your own experiences and trying to make meaning out of that versus like Trello board to do lists, that kind of thing. Yeah. And like to your point about like the mat, even though jujitsu and writing are kind of complementary around continuing to show up and do the work, being comfortable in uncomfortable situations, whether it's writer's block or being stuck in a certain position, being committed to a long game of I could write a successful book or an unsuccessful book. But like the important thing is that like I'm doing the work, same deal for I could win first place at PANS next week, or I could get knocked out in the first round. Did I prepare and do the work to a degree that I am proud of that will ultimately make me a better practitioner in the long run? Like, that's the question I need to answer. Same mm. for the writing. Like, is it good work? Does it stand on its own? Is it something I can be proud of? If if I got hit by a car tomorrow, would I regret how I spent my time? If I got COVID tomorrow or like, those were the questions I was forced to answer in 2020 of if tomorrow or my last day, was I happy with how I spent my time? And if the answer is no, figure out what needs to happen in order to be satisfied with how I'm spending my time, who I'm spending it with, how I'm allocating time, energy, and effort. The challenge with the writing in jiu-jitsu is like one is physically exhausting, both are mentally exhausting. Mm. So getting used to like what is the right training schedule and writing schedule has been a bit of a challenge too. Like the days where I train less and writing and training are more balanced are optimal, I think for both. But I still have this regret of like, well, what if I went to this other class for jujitsu? What if I trained in this extra session? Mm. Usually there are diminishing returns, but I need to get over the hump in my head of like, if the class is on the schedule, it does not mean you have to do the class. And there are other valuable ways of spending my training time, like watching my own tape, watching certain instructionals, being more mindful and strategic and working smarter, not harder. Mm. My tendency is to work as hard as possible, as opposed to like, let's take a step back and try to work smarter especially when there's tons of people on the internet and jujitsu are like posting about their training and whether it's real or imaginary, the illusion of them doing hard work all the time is present. And I probably could benefit from just getting off social media, but we're, and we're not for writing. I probably would, but Mm -hmm. I need to figure out ways to promote my work, talk about this trip, which I should, I guess, say the other piece for writing too, is most of the like trip related and blogging writing I do now is via Instagram in the captions for better, for worse, and a newsletter that I'm pumping out on a monthly basis. The other piece of writing that's kind of going on behind the scenes is uh, an outline for a book proposal. So even though I've left like the corporate world, I'm learning about like the business of publishing and to some extent, a proposal is just a business plan. So I have left my employer, but I have not left business in many ways. <laughs> right, right. And and just for listeners to put it into context, you know, you had also run a startup before and mm-hmm. you co-hosted a podcast. So you're no yep. stranger to, to running things on your own schedule and setting your own milestones. I have no idea how I did that in hindsight. The food <laughs> business I did while I was working at HBS and the podcast I did on a full course load. The things we do when we're early 20s, right? (laughs) Yeah. I often wonder with those experiences, like, what if I've continued? Because I I think I would have been successful in scaling both of them if I just stuck with it. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing when I think about goals for jujitsu and writing too, of remember those two things you did and you didn't stick with them. Imagine how much reach you'd have with that podcast if you and Lily had stuck with it. Imagine 
what that food business would have looked like if you'd hired a co-packer and you just focused on getting into Whole Foods and seeing what would have happened. I don't want to have those regrets with my jujitsu and with my writing of think about how far you could have gone if you just were willing to give another five years, like give it the full five years to get up and running and 10 years to flourish. Don't stop at one or two. That's why the most important thing I learned from both of those experiences of you're going to need to ask for help. You can't really do it alone. Mm. Only you alone can do the work, but like for it to be successful, you need other people. Just don't like, don't quit before the miracle happens, which is what Mm. um, a life coach in 2013, right before I started that food business uh, had told me that food business started at a yoga retreat where I was like wondering about my life. And I came out of that yoga retreat with the revelation of I was going to apply to business school and I was going to start that food business. And you did both. I did both. What was your favorite thing to bake? So if I had just stuck with it, I probably could have like branded this before a whole bunch of other people did. I made these like vegan date fudge balls that were like cocoa powder, some sort of nut butter. But I remember the thing that I most enjoyed baking or that I thought was like the coolest thing were these like chocolate lavender brownies. Ooh, Like those didn't sell unless you were in a, a very particular crowd in Cambridge. Standard brownies, standard chocolate chip cookies. A classic well-executed goes a lot further than something avant-garde unless you're in like the right audience. Mm. And I think about that a lot too when it comes to writing in jiu-jitsu of hmm. execute your twist on a classic well. You'll probably go a lot farther doing that than trying to create something totally new and different, or at least going with the intention of who are the people that you look up to in the sport with like a timeless game? Who are the people whose stories like stick with you and resonate with you long after you've read the book? Mm. If that's the feeling that you want to go for, what's like the core storyline? What's the core of their technique? Chase that and put your spin on it. And in that way, it will become original without having to work so hard with a determination to be original out the gate. Right, right. That's working smart. I feel like you did all the things like right before they became mainstream, like gluten-free baking and starting a podcast in 2016 before it blew up and Joe Rogan and all the things. That's another reason why I regret it. I'm like, clearly, they're, <laughs> I, I'm not going to toot my own horn, but I was like, I was right about those two things. If I'm right about like women in jujitsu or some like books about like a road less traveled mm-hmm. with more of an edge, then like that is another reason I need to stay the course with this because my intuition hasn't led me down a terrible path. I just quit before I hit the money, metaphorical money. Like, right. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather die with a book to my name than a certain sum. Do you feel like you're living the dream? I'm living the life that I want to live. Not every day is rosy. In fact, most days are not because I am accountable to me. If I'm off my own schedule, no one's going to hold me responsible for my stuff. I need to do that for myself. The process of growing and stretching is not necessarily joyful, but it's growing and stretching. The dream is not a gilded dream. It's like doing masonry work in my own driveway or something like that. (laughs) Oh man, this has been amazing, Erica. You have accomplished a lot and should be proud of it. If uh, listeners are interested in learning more about you and following your work, where can they find you? I'd say your best bet is to follow me on my personal account at Z-E-N-D-E-L-L-E on Instagram or where you can find a link to Zen in the Art of Fighting. All one word is the other Instagram handle on which I'm doing most of my writing on my Instagram bios where you can subscribe to the newsletter that I mentioned. I also have a Patreon with some exclusive content. All the links are in the link tree in the Instagram bio. Uh, Perfect. Thanks, Erica. Thank you, Jane. Talk soon. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. I'd love to hear what you got out of this episode. 
Take a picture of where you're listening from and tag me on a story at Inside Out with Jane. I'll be back here next Tuesday. And in the meantime, chat with you online. Bye.